We are continuing our study in Psalms. I believe this is Ollie's first, first Bible class. I'm very honored to be the teacher in that class. Don't normally teach that age, but I'll do my best for him tonight. Last week, uh, we began a study. You know, we're doing various topics and, and looking at different Psalms uh, along the way. And we began a study talking about spirituality uh, last week. And we discussed the fact that our culture looks for the realm of the unknown, the spiritual realm in different ways. And, um, and you know, I even remembered, Calvert, we were talking about this. I remembered my visual aid, so it'll stick with you, right? The fortune cookie is one of the ways that people, they want to try to learn about the future. So I even did this for dramatic effect without looking at it. And so it says that doubt is the beginning, not the end of wisdom. We'll think about that. So um, if you need lucky numbers, you shouldn't be playing the lottery. Um, Oh, well, I didn't know that. Now I know. One of my Chinese friends. Never know. I like that. I like that. Um, so uh, you'll remember the fortune cookie, hopefully, and remember that we talked about spirituality. You know, our hearts, they're, they're looking for someone or something to worship. And what we really need, uh, not any of these mystical things, we need a relationship with God. And that's what true spirituality is all about. Um, so we started last week by taking a look at Psalm 114, and uh, I'm just going to recap the two points that we made about true spirituality to bring them back to your memory, and then we're going to move on to new material for tonight. So in Psalm 114, we talked about the fact that true spirituality comes from realizing the greatness of God, and, and we would learn about that through the marks of his creation. If you remember uh, a couple verses there, if you, if you flip to that passage that we talked about were verses 3 and 4 that say the sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs, and we talked about the ability of the creator to control the creation. And our key point from Psalm 114 was that the God who brought Israel across the Red Sea who divided Jordan, who drew water from the rock, that God is as active now as he was then. Maybe in different ways, but he cares for us today just like he cared for Israel in the long ago. And we talked about the fact that the gospel even tells us to ask and it'll be given, to seek and find and knock and it'll be opened. And so um, the God that did all of these things has the same attitude toward us that he did toward them. And the God that saved them from, uh, from their attackers and from oppression back then is the same God that saves us. For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. Then we moved on to a second point. And we talked about the fact that true spirituality involves realizing that we can, that, that not only there's this great God who created everything and his power and his majesty is above anything that we can fathom, 
but that we can trust in that God, that we can have a relationship with that God. And we went to Psalm 40 uh, in relation to that. And so Psalm 40, we looked at uh, a number of verses, but uh, real quickly, I'll just mention verses one through four that say, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. So we discussed that uh, in addition to having a sense for the greatness of God, that we can also realize that we can trust this great God. God's not just distant and powerful. He's personal and he's caring. We also talked about the fact that one of the things that we need to learn about, that we can learn from this psalm, is that if we're going to trust in the Lord, a big part of trusting in the Lord is learning about waiting on the Lord. That the Lord will do his work in his time and a big part of crafting our faith and our trusting God is realizing that and learning patience and understanding to wait on, on the Lord's time frames, not on ours. And we talked about the fact that we wait on the Lord in obedience, that while we wait on the Lord, we don't just wait and say, all right, if you'll do what I ask of you, then I'll start obeying you. We wait in obedience. We wait and do what the Lord has asked us to do. We wait in faith. Um, we, we believe that God will um, respond to the requests that we make of him, and we wait in confidence because that faith that we're developing produces assurance. Um, last thought from Psalm 40 before we move on to new material, we also talked about the characteristics of a trusting servant. We looked at verses 6 through 10. We won't go back over those. But we talked about in verses 6 through 10 of Psalm 40 that a faithful servant serves from the heart, that he goes beyond thinking about what do I have to do to what can I do to serve the Lord. He's obedient. He wants to obey all of God's commands. He finds serving a delight. God's commands are not a burden. They're a joy. And he shares God's loving kindness with others. Um, a, a trusting, faithful servant of God can't keep it to himself. He wants to share his experience and his relationship with God with everyone else. So that's where we got to. And so new material for tonight. We sort of, uh, we made our way over to this, but I don't think we really did enough that uh, you or I either remember much about it. So let's go to Psalm 19. And this is our last point about spirituality, that true spirituality means personal communication with God. So let's read Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for us, for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens 
and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As we mentioned last week, this is one of the most, I guess, um, most famous, uh, most quoted, uh, most familiar of the Psalms. Um, and we made, uh, I think I may have at least given you sort of a brief outline of Psalm 19. And, um, and so we'll just mention that again. If we want to break it up, we can break it up into three parts. And, and all of them having to do with the glory of God. The first six verses tell us that the glory of God, tell us about the glory of God um, as reflected by his world. So back to what we've been talking about earlier in the study about his creation and the majesty of his creation. Then verses 7 through 11, we can learn about the glory of God as revealed by his word. And we're going to spend some time looking at that, about um, the way that God's word is described. And then in verses 12 through 14, the glory of God as received by his servant. And so at the end of this, it gets back to, all right, his word is great, but it's about us and how we receive it um, is what it means to us personally. So as I said, let's, uh, let's take a look at this middle section. Um, you know, we've, we've said throughout this study that we're really not um, we're not emptying out in any way everything that can be taken out of these psalms. So uh, hopefully you're making a list of these and, uh, and spend some time in them on your own because we're, not we're truthfully not getting everything out of them that we can. But in verses 7 through 10, uh, let's think about what the scriptures do for us. And the first thing is the scriptures teach us. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So um, the first part of this chapter and, uh, and what we've discussed already in this study is that we can see God's glory in nature, but his specific revelation to us in the Bible tells us much more about God and, and the way to salvation. So the scriptures teach us. They teach us what we need to do and it's perfect, and it's sure. Um, in verse 8, the scriptures search us, uh, and it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So from this, this passage, what we can learn is the word of God, as we allow it to, examines us. So every time we study God's word, if we do it, we often say with an open heart, 
and an open mind. If we, if we study God's word that way, it examines us. It probes our heart. It looks at our intents. And so when something says the scriptures search us or, or they, they enlighten the eyes, um, you ever had one of those moments where, you know, your eyes get me, well, being, you know, and now I get it. The scriptures do that for us as we compare our lives to what we are, are studying and reading. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says exactly this. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is, just says exactly the same thing, that, that if we allow God's word to, uh, to be active in our lives, that what it's going to do is it's going to discern our thoughts and our intentions. It's going to guide them. It's going to convict us when we're wrong. And that's why we need to be in God's word so much. So if we allow it to, God's word will search and remove all of our wrong motivations and our desires and our ambitions, those things that are wrong. It will expose them and it will change us. So the scriptures search us. Then moving on to verse 9, the scriptures cleanse us. Uh, so verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the scriptures point us in the way of God's grace and his love, and, and, and we don't ha have to wonder what to do when we make mistakes. We have the law of the Lord reminding us and guiding us of that. And, and so the, the scriptures cleanse us. They, they tell us exactly what we need to do. I, I found the, the second part of verse 9 very interesting, right? The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And that brought to mind to me something that I've dealt with in the past. And that is, have you ever had to follow a bad set of instructions? Um, I, when I put things together, I really do. And a lot of this has to do with I'm not much of a craftsman. But I am an instruction follower. And so if I'm putting together a cabinet or something that, you know, that we've bought or, you know, uh, just anything, I really, really try to follow to the T the instructions because I know, you know, if I leave this page, if I'm just like, I'll, I'll eyeball that and put it all together and if there's some stuff left, you know, it's not going to work, right? Or it won't be, you know, it won't stand up or whatever it needs to do, that won't happen. But if you follow the instructions, you should get the right thing. But when I was studying this, this passage right here, I thought about a couple of things. Millie bought, I guess maybe a year, two years ago, she bought a bicycle from Amazon. And if you don't take anything from this lesson tonight, don't you ever buy a bicycle from Amazon. You go to Academy or to Walmart or wherever you want to, and you roll that thing into the back of your car and you take it home. Because when you buy a bike from Amazon, they will send you a box that's about the size of this sheet of paper. 
and they spend, they go painstakingly decide how I can break this thing down and take every spoke out of every wheel and every piece apart and, and make it in the smallest possible thing to send you. And then they send with it also a novel of instructions to follow. And sometimes they're not very good because I studied and I studied these instructions. And even now today, y'all probably all know this, right? But you can look up the instructions on YouTube as well, right? And so I watched the video over and over. And I'd back it up and I'd forward it again and I'd back it up because I wanted to make sure I did this right. And sure enough, so it was one of those that had two wheels on the back and a basket in the back and a lot of complexity or whatever. And just as sure as anything, I installed that those back two legs turn around backwards. And so I had to take it all apart and undo all of that. And I promise you, I did my best, but it was bad instructions. And then I'll tell you another one right quick, and that is that um, for Christmas, I asked for a stand to put a TV on, one of these that, like we have in some of the classrooms. And so I got the instructions, and it was one page. I think it might have had Chinese writing on it, but it just had pictures, like eight pictures, and they weren't very good pictures. You know, it looked like a child had drawn them. And, and it, it was like, here's the box, and here's the TV stand, and here's, you know, six pictures that get you from the box to the TV stand. And so I ended up FaceTiming Patrick saying, what do you think I need to do here at the, take a look at this. Because I knew he'd put all these together up at church. Well, certainly maybe that'll work. And, and so, you know, only through Patrick's saving me, not through the instructions, you know, did, you know, jury's still out. That TV may fall over someday. But, um, but bad instructions create bad followers. So out of all this, what we learn is the perfect law is such a blessing. There are no bad instructions in God's word. God's word is perfect. It's, it fits us for every situation. It tells us the things we must do. And good instructions, if we'll do our part, creates good followers. And so we are so blessed that we have the perfect law. The scriptures sustain us. Uh, we need the scriptures. Verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. We need divine guidance in our lives. We should be so grateful for the testimony of the Lord that he's communicated with us through the perfect law. Never take it for granted. Study it. Follow it and share it with others. As we close out Psalm 19, there's that section we just went over that talks about how great God's word is and how the glory is revealed through his word. But I don't want to leave without, um, you know, one of the most uh, easily recognizable verses is verse 14 that says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know, so what does that verse say? It says, may the things that I say be pleasing to God. May the things that I think be pleasing to God. May my worship be pleasing to God. 
And those wishes are present in us because of who God is. God is our rock. He's our stronghold. He's our redeemer. We have, there is no other deliverer like our God. So God hasn't left us alone. Uh, so Psalm 19 gives us God's communication, his perfect law that sets us on the right paths. So we wrap up this idea of true spirituality with three revelations here. There's someone greater than us in the world. This great and powerful God is someone we can trust, who cares for us personally. And then finally, we learn from Scripture that this great God, even with all of his power, wants to communicate with us, and he's given us the perfect law to do just that. True spirituality, it doesn't come from any of that, that fortune cookie or any mystical way that anybody in the world has ever devised. True spirituality comes from the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. All right, so now for the time that we have remaining, we've got about 20 minutes. I want us to get into a, a new, uh, new topic. And so uh, as we move out of spirituality, uh, the next thing we're going to talk about is the idea, this one's a little different than all the rest so far. The rest have been, you know, maybe a, a, I would say a spiritual topic, a spiritual grouping of the Psalms. But I think it's important to look at this one because we're going to look a little bit at the artistry of the Psalms. It's very important to, you know, sort of understand what the Psalms are about, uh, some of the uses uh, and, and the way that the Psalms are written, I think that there'll be value in doing this. So Psalms is a unique book of the Bible. And you know this. It's not straight narrative. It's written in a much more artistic way than most of the rest of the Bible. Uh, many of the Psalms are written in the form of Hebrew poetry. Um, other Psalms are written as lyrics, which were sung in worship to God. And as we've already studied throughout the quarter, uh, the Psalms use beautiful word pictures to express human emotion. And, and we've seen some of the gamut of that already. Pure joy, burning anger, desperate fear, heartbreaking sadness, overwhelming awe. The Psalms have addressed all of those, uh, in, even in the ones that we've looked at, and that's only a small fraction of the Psalms, of the 150. So each of the psalmists, as they wrote their psalms, they laid their hearts out to God and didn't hold back in expressing how they felt about things. And, and that's very interesting, right? Because we know that, that the psalms are the inspired word of God. But one, one of the wonders of inspiration is that the psalms are like journal entries that the psalmist wrote to God yet they were inspired by God. How can both of those things happen? It's beyond our comprehension how inspiration works, but it is a wondrous thing. You know, the, whole, the entire Bible begins with creativity as we talk about artistry in the Psalms. You know, the story of creation where he made heaven and earth uh, is the way that the whole Bible begins. And in one sense, the Psalms can be considered man's expression of creativity back to God. Uh, if you think about the way that these have been written and how many of them have been written uh, in some kind of expression back to God. And so the fact that this type of writing is included in the Bible, 
uh, I think one of the things it tells us is that artistry is not just fluff. It's something that God put here for a reason. It's an important aspect of life, and it's something that God created within each one of us as a way to express our feelings. It's important, and it was a great way that was used in the writing of the Psalms. So, we're going to talk about three different artistic aspects of the Psalms. And the first one is, uh, this will probably be all we have time to hit uh, this week, is that the poetry of the Psalms is unique. So the book of Psalms is a book of poetry. Uh, it might, all, might not always seem that way to us because it, it's not written in its original language. But you know, in so many of the Psalms, even the fact, it's, and this is amazing to me, even the fact that it's been translated from Hebrew to English in our translations, it still keeps its poetic nature you know, very well. Now, there are some things we lose, and we're going to go over some of those uh, because it's not in its original language. But as you read so many you know, of, the, of the Psalms, you can feel and tell the poetry. Now, all, true confession, right? Tim's a math major, right? So, so poetry, you know, I got out of those classes as quickly as possible. You know, so I could get to the things with definite answers, right? Not the things that you had to express your feelings. So, uh, so Tim's not in his, uh, in his zone here, but, uh, you know, I'll give, give you the best that I can in relation to this. So um, Hebrew poetry was written in a style called parallelism. And uh, because of parallelism, this is one of the ways that the poetry was not lost in the translation from Hebrew to English. So um, let's talk about that for just a second, and then we'll look at an example of it. So um, biblical poetry is largely based on pairings of versets or segments or halves of verses, maybe just a few words long, and these versets parallel each other. Uh, they might reiterate something, expand upon an idea, but they aren't just intended to be repetitive. They're there for a reason. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So uh, as we see parallelism in the Psalms, we're developing an idea uh, by either maybe an analogy or greater detail or showing how one event follows another event. Go to Psalm 15. Enough of Tim's talk. Let's, let's look at an example and it'll make more sense. Psalm 15, who shall dwell on your holy hill? So this is a short psalm. Here's what it says. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. So hopefully, and, and maybe you can just sort of flag there, you know, do you see some parallelism now, when I said parallelism, what I, what I was mentioning is some repetition of an idea. 
maybe that's, that's developing upon itself, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But before we do, before we get into those, those technical things, I don't want to deal with any psalm without talking about what it's saying to us in a little more detail, and then we'll, we'll deal with this more technical thing of, of these parallels and why they might exist. So I read this in studying Psalm 15. I read this suggestion, and I thought it was really good, um, about a way to think about this psalm. And um, the, the, the writer um, commenting on, on this passage said, think of an imaginary scene where there's only one place where worship is occurring to God, where true worship is occurring, one building. And in that building, there is one door. And beside that door, there's an angel. And the angel is doing a one-question interview of everybody who's coming in to worship. And that one question is, are you spiritually prepared to worship the Almighty God? And so that's sort of what verse 1 is saying. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on the holy hill? All right, so here's the question. Who is ready and prepared to worship God, to follow God? So what are some of the answers that the angel might receive? What might be the responses to that question? What's required to worship and, and to live with God, that's really the remainder of this psalm. So it's all these things we look at in the rest of the psalm. Just thought that was an interesting way. Sometimes I need a little, you know, a little thought to go around this, to think about that, that the rest of this psalm, these, these, all these things are really character traits that we're talking about in the rest of the psalm that make up the person who's ready to worship God. Thomas Jefferson made a comment about Psalm 15. He said that Psalm 15 gives the earmarks of a true gentleman. And if you, you know, read these list of things, I mean, you get a pretty good guy if he does all of these things. Uh, his statement's not wrong, but we know that that Psalm really goes beyond a true gentleman to a godly person, is one who is, and in so many words, sincere of heart, lives with integrity and righteousness, encourages the righteous, restrains their tongue, is dependable as a friend, keeps their promises, does an honest day work for an honest day pay, seeks no more than a fair use of money, never takes a bribe, always tells the truth. You know, in different words, that's sort of everything you see there in, in that passage that's a pretty good guy, right? I'd do business with him. I'd be a friend with him. Sounds like, a, sounds like a, a good person, but that's a godly person. That person walks with God, and they're able to worship God acceptably if you think about that original picture that we painted there. That person's at home with God, stands approved with God. Now, back to the idea of the artistry of this all. So... Um, Somebody give me an example here when we're talking about parallelism that you see in Psalm 15 where there's something and then it's, it's repeated or reiterated in some way. The first two questions. Absolutely. Right? What else? 
Yes, ma'am. That's, that's very true. Um, and so, you know, in these next couple of verses, there's, you know, some repetition there about speaking truth and not slandering with the tongue. You know, then there's repetition about not doing evil and not taking reproach. There's a lot of sort of repetition of an idea, right? These things about money. Swears to his own hurt, does not change, does not put out his own money and interest, doesn't take a bribe. Against, you know, there, there is sort of a building there. There's a lot of, um, you know, sort of saying somewhat the same things, but building a picture. When I think of this kind of language, I think of sometimes when I've been when I've been away from the house, maybe with my friends, and I come home, and Millie asks me, like, what'd y'all talk about? And she would like for me to answer in parallelism. But often I answer in non-parallelism, right? Oh, not too much, you know. Oh, we just, you know, you know it's really simple. Why would the psalmist write in this kind of way? What does it do for us as receivers of this? What, 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 what's the value of this? That's right. And even in these things that I said were sort of parallel thoughts, there's always something a little more, right? I mean, there's a, either another way of thinking about that statement or even in these things that we're talking about money, there's some different aspects to it, so it paints a picture, right? It's, it's really a word picture, and, you know, that's what the Psalms do for us, right? They're not just, you know, a list of just statements. They help to draw the picture. And so I think that's, that's a really important part of this. Um, is, is painting a picture with words. I thought about it this way. It's sort of the difference between a picture that you draw in a game of Pictionary and a picture that you see in an art gallery, right? I can identify something over here, but this one is for examination and thought, right? And that's what the Psalms are about. The Psalms are about soaking this in, and that's the reason that like so much of... The rest of God's word, we can study it over and over and over again. And there's that nuance or that word or that turn of phrase that you catch the next time that you didn't catch the last time. And we literally can study these for a lifetime and continue to gain uh, from them that, to help us in our lives. So, um, so one of the ways that uh, one of the types of poetry that exists is, uh, is parallelism. There are other poetic um, forms in the Psalms as well, and some of them are written as acrostics. So what's an acrostic? It's a... Right. And, um, and so, you know, then, then there's also the version that spells like a word, Right, um, I told Jonathan that I was gonna I was gonna share with y'all um, our acrostic song that we wrote for Mother's Day, 
And we sort of share this with Millie each Mother's Day. And it's very special. And if y'all if y'all are tender-hearted, you might want a tissue. Um, I'll give you a chance to get one. Um, so this will remind you about an acrostic, right? And this is how it goes. I won't sing it. It's better if you do. But it says, M is for the many things you do. O is for the other things you do. T is for the things you do. H is for hundreds of things you do. E is for everything you do. And R is for the rest of the things you do. Now, it means more when you sing it. Put them all together, they spell mother. Mother, that's you. And so we worked a lot on that, and we try to give her a heartfelt rendition of it each Mother's Day because we're sentimental like that. But if you ever need to know, ever need to think about what an acrostic is, um, there it is. So y'all pray for Millie. It's, it's tough at our house sometimes, but um, maybe that'll help you remember that the Psalms make use of acrostics. Now, this is one of those things, and I'll leave you with this, and we'll wrap up, that this is one of those things that gets lost in the translation, right? Because um, often um, when the Psalms were written, they, there are some of the Psalms, and we'll hit a couple next week, but there are some of the Psalms where each verse began with the, each subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You can't tell that when it gets translated into English. So it loses that particular aspect, but it doesn't lose the value of the message. Um, if you look at Psalm 119, and we won't read through that one, but what you'll see is that if it, probably your translation has a section for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it, it begins with, with that and through those if I remember 176 verses, you know, it goes through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, as I understand it, and I'm just going to have to trust the people who uh, told me this, that the, in the Hebrew translation, not only does the section begin with that letter, but the beginning of every line within that section also began with that letter. That's pretty cool. Again, we lost that in the translation, but... Um, if you think about these things, you know, one of the things that, that, um, that acrostics do for you or, or this kind of writing does for you is it's a great memory aid, right? And uh, I know I've told too many stories tonight, but I'll tell you one more. The reason that I know about the metric system is because of an acrostic, right? And so that's how I can always remember it from Munford High School circa 1981, Karen Howell dates ugly, dumb Curtis Mayo. And that's how I know kilo, hecta, deca, unit, deca, cena, milla, right? Is because of that acrostic. And so if you think of those acrostics and that alliteration, can you imagine the Hebrews and their, maybe their children and they're saying, all right, we're in that, we're in that A section of Psalm 119. You know, will give me one of those lines that starts with an A. You know, or um, you know, there's there's psalms that where every verse is a different letter, 
How much easier is it for you to think about? Now, which one is it that starts with a K? K is for, and you can just remember those things, right? And so, uh, you know, when I think about the study of this, I think about the Hebrews back at that time and probably how valuable it was as they tried to learn these scriptures to store them in their hearts, how easy it was, just like with us, where we try to find our acrostics and remember things. So, all right. We'll stop there, and uh, I think we're going to start with Psalm 145 next Wednesday night.